Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hi everyone, I'm Emily and I'm absolutely fine, but I did something <laughs> so idiotic this morning, which is I went over to Annabelle's and I, I walked in and I said, you know Annabelle, my foot that's been hurting for two years is suddenly hurting a little bit less. And she looked at me with her gimlet eye and went, now that is the stupidest fucking thing that you've said in a long time. And I thought, oh God, it's true. Um, So I'm fully expecting to have a massive foot catastrophe. A foot Uh, relapse. Do you remember you walked in and you went, I have to tell you, Annabelle, I feel incredibly optimistic and, uh, you know, and and, and mentally robust. And I said, oh my God, you're about to have a catastrophic breakdown. And and, no spoiler alert, she did. Exactly. Anyway, so... It's awful to be the angel of death. You are the angel of death, but also I should learn not to kind of tempt fate in that hideous way and never to say things like, oh, I think I'm feeling quite well today or, oh, my hair looks good today or almost anything basically you just have to just like you should never learn that lesson you should stay (laughs) Miss Dolly Sunbeam just the way I like you anyway okay how are you darling I'm absolutely fine but they've got really really incredibly dirty hair and I'm a clean freak and it and it's it's never dirty and I just can't seem to find the will or the window to wash it and dry it and zhuzh it and backcomb it. And I feel Um, like now it can just stay dirty until either it starts (laughs) apocryphally self-cleaning or the world ends, whichever um, comes first. How, when you say dirty, like, what are you talking here? How many days? Four or five days. Really? Yeah, and I've got really fine hair, so that's, that's a lot. But, you know... Em, you and I were discussing earlier, weren't we, that something, you know, it's like Emily was saying, oh, I need a haircut, but oh, I can't face sitting in the hairdress. It's like, my, I've got feet like an old goat herd living in a cave. And can I find a way, a way to have a pedicure? I cannot. And so this suggests to me one of three things, possibly all three. One, I'm very depressed. <laughs> Two, I'm just old. Three, the pandemic has done something irreversible to time and we can no longer manage it in the way that we used to. But I think one of the reasons that Emily and I are talking about such silly things, blathering on about about hair and and feet, is we are genuinely rather awestruck by today's guest. She is a BAFTA and Emmy award-winning screenwriter of such magnificences as The Hour, The Split, Iron Lady, Shame, Suffragette. But she's soon to be famous for her bestseller, This Is Not A Pity Memoir. Okay, so we should warn you that this is a book about a series of heartbreaking events. Her husband had a catastrophic reaction to MS drugs. He woke up from a months-long coma, utterly changed, and she was the only person he didn't recognise. Then while caring for him, and he needed round-the-clock care, and supporting the family, she got breast cancer. But this compelling tale of love, endurance and devastation is also a tale of love, laughter, loyalty and, well, life. Oh my goodness, Abby Morgan. Full disclosure, I've known this fucking remarkable woman and her husband Jacob for longer than I care to remember. I don't really know where to start, so I'm just going to start by asking Abby, how are you? I'm absolutely fine, but I did the thing today that I said I wasn't going to do. And when I got home after being at work this morning, I ordered a delivery burger and milkshakes and am I regretting it now I feel that I feel that remorse and I feel and to be honest it's complicated red meat is really complicated for me because you say I've got I've had cancer 
And I, you know, you're always looking for these things. You think, yeah, I mustn't eat bacon. I mustn't drink too much red wine. I mustn't eat too much sugar. So when I eat red meat, it, I berate myself for it on many levels. Also ethically, you know, on that whole green thing. Do you know, I always think a really, really great day is a two siesta day and a really, really bad day is a two delivery day. <laughs> it's about, well, it's so dangerous now. I think that's the fallout. You know, you were talking about what's the fallout from COVID. I think delivery is the fallout from COVID. When I was a kid and you'd watch those sort of Kramer versus Kramer films and someone would be having takeout and you'd always think what an extraordinary thing takeout is. And now it's just become a way of life for my kids. I open the fridge and there are various sort of... <laughs> delivery meals so that's yes yeah, so that's my that I'm absolutely fine but I I, I slightly so I've got a lot of self-loathing and self-disgust in this <laughs> but oh, the God. red meat thing I mean do you remember being 20 and you'd have sort of nine steaks and think yay I'm being keto and now if you even look at one you're sort of awake for three days worrying about your digestion totally. the planet and everything else yeah your body's a completely di- my, my body's a completely different animal now everything I mean it's weird isn't it you spend so long trying to chase sleep after you've had kids and then just when you get them sleeping you're suddenly wide awake so that's what I feel like I stay awake quite late into the night now. So Abby after all the years of writing extraordinary stories about other people Mm. you suddenly decided to write this extraordinary story about you and the people that you love most in the world and we'll talk a little bit about how the story actually unfolded but how did you make and why did you make the decision to do that? Well, I, I think um, the novelist Isabel Allende says memoirs are an exercise in truth. And I think that having had sort of two, three years where everything, my identity, our existence as a family, my mortality was under threat, I sort of really had to sift between what was real and what wasn't. And so I think that's why I started to write and certainly sit down in the autumn of the second lockdown and think, right, I'm going to put start to put fingers to laptop rather than pen to paper, but, you know, fingers to keyboard. And so I think it's that. I think also it was an act of sanity and an act of resistance. You know, I think I think that first lockdown was pretty gorgeous, actually, in terms of obviously it was terrible what was happening globally, but it was gorgeous in terms of let's make sourdough. And, you know, mm. I, built veg- I built vegetable boxes and I felt like for, as a family, it was a very key moment for us where we could all come together. But the second, the start of the second as it started to get colder and darker, and I think we were all feeling like, how long can this go on for? I just found myself at 11 o'clock at night going down to my kitchen table and starting to write. And I think I was, I think I was writing against despair, actually, and just this overwhelming sense of, I felt like I was carrying something that I, I genuinely thought I've got to put it down. If I don't put it down, it's going to kill me. Yeah. And having, you know, I think all of those things, I think if you, if you've ever experienced cancer, it's, you know, inevitably, you know, you, you can say it's the gods, you can say it's your genetics, you can look, certainly look at your climate, your environment, all of those things, but there's always part of you that thinks, what did I do wrong? And um, and one of the things I think a lot about is the way I've worked my whole life to deadlines, my whole life to late nights, you know, drinking Diet Coke, eating crunchy bars, you know, living in a very sort of last minute adrenalised way. And I just felt like actually all of those things had a cost. And one of the things that I felt was really a cost was the experience of the last few years. And so it was a real need to kind of just try and get that story down. And subsequently, of course, I now see lots of other benefits from it. But I think my initial thrust of it was to write, try and sift what was true and what wasn't. And also just just to fight against that. 
I, mm. I wonder if you found some resolution around the is this my fault, what did I do wrong thing towards the end of the book, because you have a section at the end where you say you think you can be careful and good, but in the end, you have to just swim across the current. You can't necessarily dodge the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune by just living a virtuous, meditative, you know, irreproachable mm. life. I think it's a balance. I mean, one of the things that I, I'm infinitely in awe of people who've gone through any kind of medical catastrophe or certainly cancer. And one of the things, all that phraseology, warrior, goddess, you know, fighting battles, I totally understand where all of that comes from because certainly you do feel like you're in a battle, but also it lays blame and it, 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 it lames something on defeat if you don't get through it. Mm. And to a certain degree, you just can't, you know, sometimes the drugs work for people and sometimes they don't. And I was just very fortunate that they worked for me. But I don't think I fought any harder than anyone else who's out there. So it then makes you realise that actually in the context of a much bigger world, mm. a much bigger universe, you're a very small fragment in it. And, you know, life is about the losses and the gains. And... That's just one of those things I sort of learned from it, I guess. So the cancer diagnosis happens when we are already well into your story. Mm. But can we, can we, can we rewind a bit mm. to what predates the beginning of your story, which is that you had been with this remarkable, charismatic, funny, <laughs> extraordinary man that I've known since I was a teenager yeah. for almost 20 years. When the book begins, you had two children, a boy mm. and a girl. And he was also very, as, as, you, as you were producing this extraordinary body of work, he was not only being an actor, he was also running all the minutiae of your life and mm, your house totally. and your bank accounts and your passports and the kids' schools. And, mm. and so you were a team and, 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 and on you bold. And he had already had, hadn't he, an MS diagnosis some years before. Yeah, so Jake was diagnosed with, in, with multiple cirrhosis in 2011. And I remember I was at the Venice Film Festival and with typical, Jake's very typical kind of understatement, he said, no, I'm just not feeling that great. And I said, where are you? He went, I'm in hospital, but I'm fine. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, that was when he got the MS diagnosis and I was away working. Cut to seven, eight years later, we're, we're, we're managing his MS. In fact, he was very lucky in many ways. He was relapsing, remitting. He was very high functioning. The week of his collapse, he was doing a film. Um, and, and as you said, he absolutely ran our lives. I mean, there's the kind of, we all have our roles in a relationship, but, you know, Jake was often, you know, he's an actor, but he was a jobbing actor. He was working and often wasn't. My work was much more consistent. But also he just was at the heart of our house and our family and our, our the lives of our children and the kind of infrastructure and ecosystem of everything from, as you say, you know, travel arrangements to tax issues to just the car maintenance. You know, it was all him. And I did a lot, uh, you know, the rest, really. Um, and then in, in, in June of 2018, he had what well, was not unusual, but he had a terrible headache, but it came on the back of a few other symptoms, which, you know, looking back now, I understand were actually the trigger and, and the signs that he was having a massive response to a withdrawal of a drug that he'd been on. And in a few months before Jake collapsed, this drug, which was in the last phase of a drug trial for MS, um, was a very successful drug trial. Um, it was suddenly withdrawn, voluntarily withdrawn by the drugs company uh, based on European medical agency advice because 12 people had already collapsed with various forms of brain inflammation and subsequently it, nine more people have collapsed and it's our belief that Jake is probably the 10th in that group as a result of the coming off the drug. So, yeah, absolutely catastrophic. You know, I, I found Jake collapsed on the bathroom floor, semi-conscious, rambling, not really making any sense. Very quickly, I thought, well, something major's happened here. And 
you know, he was blue lit to hospital. So ensued two weeks of of watching Jacob physically and cognitively decline in quite a profound way. Because it, there were huge trauma spikes in that, weren't there? He didn't just quietly sort of go to sleep for six months. No, he ebbed and flowed. So he ebbed and flowed. And, and actually what happened was there was a kind of ebb and flow of he was very conscious and he was like, what the hell's going on? This is so weird. It was quite funny. And then slowly he would go again. And this kind of cognitive decline and a physical decline, you know, taking him into a catatonic state then very active, very agitated, then very lucid, then very silent, then very sort of scattered, then very, very catatonic again. Um, It became apparent that, you know, having ruled out meningitis, hepatitis A, Italian ticks, could it be an infection from an Italian tick? We'd recently be on holiday there. That actually he had developed a very rare form of encephalitis, which is called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, which is a kind of global encephalitis that basically affects every cell in your brain every nmda receptor cell in your brain really and and so that was why he was having such sort of catastrophic response to it and so it they took the decision that he needed to be put into a medically induced coma in order to try and stabilize his body because everything he was constantly seizuring and so he was put into a, a coma medically induced coma at the end of june beginning of july and then he woke towards the end of january 2019 so sort of six, seven months, really. And, and you know, what no one tells you about coma is it's incredibly active. It's not the way it looks in the movies. And, you know, as a screenwriter, I'd seen that, you know, who hasn't, as a, you know, a, a normal punter, you, what, you've seen that moment in a movie when you sort of sit silently by the bed. Well, it's incredibly noisy. You know, there are peeps and there are whistles and there is machinery and there's blood pressures and that people are being fed and people are being pummeled because you have to keep their body moving. You have to clear all the, you know, the, their throat. You have to do so many different they things. They were packing him in ice for his temperature, weren't they? And then... You, well, I mean, yeah, you, you visited him, so you saw yes, obviously, I did. periods of this. And there were periods when his temperature was so high, he had to be wrapped in, in an ice blanket. Um, there were periods where it just didn't look like he was going to get through the night. Then periods of calm and then the seizures would start. So it took... The reason why he was in for that long was um, they just couldn't get rid of the seizuring. And then slowly they started different forms of treatment. And, and by the November, December, they had managed to get on top of the encephalitis. And so it became apparent that Jake was ready to be woken. And I think as a family, you know, Joe, both Jake and my family were absolutely around him. And obviously we have two teenagers. You know, there was huge joy when Jake woke up, you know, because actually though he obviously was very withdrawn, he was very silent, he couldn't speak at that time because he had a tracheotomy, etc. You could see the spark of him, and that was unbelievably uh, brilliant. You know, I think we were all delighted. What I want to ask you about, really, is that, so you have, your life then becomes entirely, I would imagine, sort of severed. So this huge part of your life, your partner is in a coma in hospital, and then the rest of your life has to somehow keep going. I mean, there's this piece in, there's this section in your book where you talk about, you know, it just feels very sort of, you know, metaphoric and the house starts falling apart. Yes, the, so the trees weird. ripping up the roots, the <laughs> microwave explodes. It's just like, you know, it's like, God, give me a sign. But it's well, I, did, I mean, I did, I did wonder whether there was a kind of kinetic energy around. And certainly what happened subsequently, I sort of, 
I, you know, I, I'm, I always look at patterns. I'm always someone who notices patterns. You kind of wake in the morning and you kind of know when it's going to be a bad day. I mean, that may well be a self-fulfilling prophecy, but, you know, you scold yourself with the kettle or you, you know, you forget to put the rubbish out. But there's a series of things that create an energy. But certainly in this situation, everything went wrong with the house. I mean, you know, there was a, there was a leak. The microwave broke up, broke down. You know, there was cracks that have appeared through the, through the house. You know, finally that tree outside somewhere got the house moving. And so I think everything around me started to function that way. But the other thing, it's interesting, the nature of what I do is I'm a dramatist. So I was actually writing, um, I was gearing up for the second series of The Split when Jacob collapsed. So I was in the process of writing that. And I actually was in, the thing that was very fortunate is my the offices where I work are incredibly close to the hospital. So, you know, that the team that I've worked with for years were absolutely amazing. You know, at Sister Pictures, they were just phenomenal. And they would come and meet me in Queen Square and sit and do notes. And I could dash down there when things got really bad. I could go into a meeting and if they got bad, I, I, I could take a call and go back. You know, they would let me fall asleep. We'd, I'd go for, you know, editorial meetings that could go on all afternoon. And they'd say, you look exhausted, lie down, we'll come back in an hour. And they'd all mm. clear the room. So I had this amazing community that really got me through. And I think it's also the nature of the kind of work one does, the kind of work I do. You don't leave your life at home. It actually, it's part of what feeds your work. You know, particularly doing a show like The Split, it's about love, it's about relationships, it's about affairs, it's about. So everybody brings their stories, and this was a very dominant story through this. Um, I was really interested in the way that when you're writing the book, you're very conscious of because you are such a you know brilliant storyteller and a dramatist. You're like. Well, is this believable or, mm. you know, because as as the catastrophe started sort of piling mm. up or mm. even, you know, no one tells you. I mean, I love exactly like you were saying about the coma, but also, you know, is this boring? Does anyone want to hear about this now? You yes, know, I'm not at all sure about this dialogue. <laughs> yes, <I'm>, totally. <laughs> you're, so self, you're so conscious of because, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like a sort of, you know, if you were creating a disaster movie, you know, there it is, isn't it? It's like one thing after another. But of course, you know, you can see someone else in the background go, I don't think anyone's going to believe that that's possible. She's not going to get breast cancer at this point for fuck's sake you know what I mean it's like what are you trying no one's going to believe that no very much so I mean I you know I definitely think I was constantly I was I was kind of using the the, the mechanisms of my editorial ear to slightly control and find form in the chaos undoubtedly I also think I got I got five six years ago I got a diagnosis of ADD attention deficit disorder and I think it makes a lot of sense about how I compute the world so I often deal with 20 million different things at the same time and I get but particularly noise really distracts me and I think I have used my sort of editorial eye to slightly focus my my world and take control on a day-to-day -day level so I definitely think that's something a mechanism I've noticed in myself and then the other thing is that you know my my kids and Jake were always the first people I pitched ideas to and so I would often talk about the films I was writing and so often when I'm talking in that voice and I think you can see it in the book. I'm actually, the person I'm mainly talking to is Jacob. Mm. So I refer a lot to you. You know, I, I, don't, I talk directly to him and then I step back on the he. And a lot of that was because I was trying to manage the crashing loss of Jacob in my day-to-day -day life. And I mean in the way that, you know, I, you know, Jacob and I had a very normal marriage, often, you know, brutal, brilliance, brilliant moments, moments where you didn't know if you were going to survive it mundanity joy you know it had all of that but what it really did have more than anything at the center is conversation you know jake and i really have always been able to talk and i could not the silence of jacob was so profound and i think that's also where 
the internal voice came from that actually then became such a central part to the storytelling of the book. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, you guys know that we're not shy about getting things off our chest. The tiny inconveniences that can ruin our days to the big, overwhelming worries that can flood our nights. Trouble is, we all got into the habit of saying, I'm absolutely fine. Emily and I added the but specifically to get off autopilot and give ourselves the space to say what we were really experiencing. But we weren't always so free with our inner furies. A few years ago, I began experiencing debilitating panic attacks because I felt I couldn't tell anyone all the things that I was feeling, that I was not coping, that I felt like a failure. I was so ashamed, so I kept it all bottled inside. And of course, it started leaking out. It was only when I found a therapist and began sharing those doubts and insecurities with her that the panic began to dissipate. Because therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash midalt. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash midalt. Better help, because sometimes the best thing to do is acknowledge that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine. Yes. Yeah, I agree. It does feel like a conversation between you and maybe him, you and us, you and, you know, whoever and the you audience. And the audience. Exactly, yeah, it's, and the it's, audience. It's what makes it so moving because it's oh. it's not just written to be spoken. It feels like it actually is being spoken. When you're saying to him, when he's in his coma, all right, stop pretending now. You know, mm. enough, enough. It's time mm. to wake up now. Mm. Um, I mean, I can only I- imagine what you went through. And then at what point in the timeline did you get your diagnosis? So Jacob woke up in the January and I got my diagnosis in the April. So sort of April, early May. But I went in, I think, end of April, post-Easter break with my brother and sister-in-law. And I'd had this crashing pain in my chest, real throbbing on my left side of my breast and I, I at first I put it down to as I say I thought it was I thought it was perhaps the seatbelt rubbing I thought I'd or just heartbreak been even heart, yeah I, exactly I, I thought I was so tense maybe there was tension in my but within 10 minutes of going to see the um, breast surgeon he said I'm 99% sure you've got breast cancer and I had a six centimeter tumor in my left breast so so I, I was diagnosed yeah with properly within two weeks of stage three grade three cancer but in a weird way it was an interesting moment because I think to go back when Jacob first woke up what was key was that Jake had developed this rare delusion called Capra delusion as you know and um which is this belief in 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 doubles or imposters and it tends to be focused in the person who wakes up it tends to be focused on someone they're close to sometimes it can be a house sometimes it can be a pet with 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 Jacob, it was focused on me. So it became apparent within the first two or three weeks that Jacob's reaction to me was very different to everyone else. So whilst he was delighted to see everyone else, he was almost quizzical around me. And at first he was quite kind and, you know, obviously felt like, I, you know, was for a minute I just thought, well, he's he's just not in him, his right mind yet, but he'll get there. But... But just because it was a, it was a slow comeback with Jacob, wasn't yeah. leap to his feet and start sort of you know articulating everything brilliantly. He he woke up, but it was it, it he was he was very changed for a, for a long very time. Very changed. So mm. I suppose he couldn't explain to you that he was having this experience. No, you. and also very you know in and out, still exhausted. You know, you're, you're, when you're waking up, you're going in and out. 
you then, you know, you can't talk very well. You have a tracheotomy, they take out your tracheotomy and then they finally, the whole bit takes out. But at the beginning, you, you talk with a, a growl and then your voice is trying to recover. So Jake had a very kind of growly, gravelly voice for the first, certainly the first few months. And he came in, he would, little ebbs and flows of conversation, but his linguistically, he was absolutely perfect. Mm. I mean, that was, his actual language was totally untouched. And his mannerisms were still there. He still very felt very like Jacob. He was just very silent, mainly, and you could initiate conversation. But, you know, I remember going in, I mean, they, they fed him a yoghurt for the first time. He hadn't eaten for seven months, and it was amazing to see how quickly he just could do that. It was, sort of, But also they asked him to speak, and I didn't expect to hear his voice. And he sounded very, very different. I mean, I, I think I said he sounds like, he sounded very like that. Mm. And... He, and um, and so that takes a bit of adjustment. So you have many kind of get-outs where you think, well, it must be this, it must be that. But it, it, it was so apparent to the point that on Valentine's Day, um, you know, when I went in to give him sort of the cheesy red balloon and he presented me, you know, after much coercion from the nurse with a sort of cellophane-wrapped kind of one of those roses you get on holiday, you know, sold to you at the table. Um, you know, when he was encouraged to give the rose to his wife, he very clearly said, that's not my wife. And even then I was like, well, yeah, well, actually, we're not officially married. Maybe, you know, you, you do this, you know, you said to me, well, we were just talking before this interview about, is it traumatic talking about it again? But what's interesting is you start to create your pat story. Mm. You know, you start to, and, and to a certain degree, you think you've written it. But, you, but actually, I can't get around some of the basic facts. And one of the things that was just profound that I still sometimes think is related to my cancer or certainly feels like it triggered was I could not stop shaking. And I took about three days of just thinking, this, I'm shaking. And I, 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 it took me a while to realize it was me that was shaking. It felt like the world was shaking. And I, I think that was when my sanity felt very um, up and down. And I do think there's a quality to the book, which is, you know, the diary of an insane woman trying to find sanity, because it definitely tests Yeah, your it's mental. one of the best things about it. Well, but I, well, I guess I think I'm glad I embraced my, well, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about it the other day, you know, someone said, God, it's so raw and you've just given so much of yourself. And I always think, well, yes, but actually my life now is private. You can give up all of yourself and still retain your privacy. You know, I've got enough to be able to give that. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not so big and I'm not so, what's the worst thing that could happen? So I'm humiliated. I think the most important thing is Well, I, I think probably the worst heard. thing that could happen has maybe happened, let's hope. Yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, the design. I can't yeah. believe you said that, would Let's <laughs> touch, touch a bit of wood around us. Literally, excuse the banging while we all start. Back to the fact that what that must feel like. You said it at the beginning, one of the reasons that you wanted to write the book was to kind of reclaim your identity, because that's obviously the biggest thing, mm -hmm. is that the delusion, he believes that the real Abby Morgan has gone away somewhere, and mm -hmm. you are there, the person left there. Mm -hmm. And he you know, he can't explain to the psychiatrist and he, he's sort of trying to work out how it's possible that you are so integrated, mm. you fake Abby mm. Morgan. But it must have, you know, it must have been extraordinary to suddenly, you know, with everything that you've gone through to then mm. lose ex your identity in that way and to have to kind of somehow mm. to accept that, I suppose, whilst caring for this person in the way that mm. you do. How did you kind of combine the two, I guess? How did you kind of drop into yourself enough to be able to do that? Well, I mean... First, I was so relieved he was alive. Yeah. And so that, that propelled me forward. There was such a tremendous relief in that. And then I think, um, you know, undoubtedly, that note, it's humiliating. Mm. It was very, and you know, humiliation is something that I really align with this whole experience. I see 
how humiliating Jake's when you when you collapse however much you don't really give a crap about being proud there is a profound humiliation between being decreased and in some way and so the loss of myself physically and certainly with the cancer I found that was very that that surprised me how much I felt humiliated by that but I think also not being recognized by Jacob was was odd because I kind of lost a status in the room Mm. Um, you know, to be asked to wait outside while he could spend time with his family, mm. and that you know, or to spend time with his friends, and could I wait outside? And you know, there's a great, there's a great moment where there was this very sweet woman who would come and read the Princess Bride to him, and she'd be coming, she was clutching the Princess Bride, which I had bought him for Christmas because it is his favourite book, and and he and I was sort of being told to get out of the room, and I, I you know, to try and make those connections for him. But I think what really changed for me is one of two things. One was. There was no one else, you know, his family were amazing, but I, I, you know, I, I was the constant who went in as well as his family, but I had to be the one to go in because I couldn't just go, okay, well, I'll, I'm going to go and come back when you remember me because there was no chance, you know, I, I knew if I went away, there was, there was very little chance of that. So, and also I really like Jacob, even when he was like this, I, I like Jacob such a lot, irrespective of whether I love him, I really like this man. And... I felt, even though it was very difficult, it was a huge comfort to be in his presence because I thought he had lost him. So the opportunity to take Jake out for lunch, the opportunity to chat with him for five minutes, even if he thought, as he did very quickly, he devised this idea that, as you say, you know, Abby Morgan had gone, she'd gone somewhere else, she was living somewhere else with someone else. She was also a very yeah. sort of tall, dark she was tall, woman, dark. wasn't she? I mean, yes, I think she was his fantasy bird. Abby is perfectly, <laughs> dark perfectly, hair. perfectly formed, but she was t- Yeah, long, dark hair, blue eyes, brown eyes, not dark hair, obviously, and much shorter. But, you know, he also, you know, he for a while he thought that he was living, he had a house in Hampstead, which, of course, again, was... Purely delusional. Um, but, you know, a dream of ours one day. Yes. So there were lots of those sort of elements to it. But actually, I think where it became really apparent is when Jacob came home and we'd progressed this idea that I, you know, Jake went from thinking, well, I think you must work for the state and that's why you've been employed by the state to help me and my family. And I kind of went, okay, yeah, no, well, I like your children. I, I'm very happy to help you if you don't mind. He was like, no, that would be good. Thank you. <laughs> and then we became friends. And, it, and you know, people say that, said those things to me. And certainly, you know, people would say, well, the silver lining is, you know, you can fall back in love. And I remember being infuriated by that. But the truth is there was an element of just, you know, laying down track for him to go, well, OK, well, let's just try and have our friendship. So we had our friendship, basically. And mm. I... And and we built it enough to bring him home and to understand that I was going to be there. And by then, I think he started to realise that something was blurry in his thinking, even though he was absolute, that I couldn't be the Abbey Morgan. But when we got him home, I remember one day I was taking him out to visit his consultant and he caught his reflection in the mirror. And I saw him looking at himself and I said, who's that? And he just went, I don't know. And I said, it's Jacob. And that was the revelation to me where I thought, no, it's not that he doesn't remember me. He's lost himself. Yes. And so what ran parallel was the more that I felt Jacob could find himself than I knew he'd find me. And he did. I mean, it took a long time. It took it took over a year. Yeah. So it took, he came, he, he woke in January 2019. And I think it started to shift early, late January, early February and it took probably another good three, four months of ebbing and flowing, but a good another three to four, five months of him starting to slowly accept that actually he'd gone through quite a profound catastrophic brain injury, as it was, and that his brain was recovering. And that was starting to make sense of why he couldn't locate who I was. So 
it was a real process. And during that time, you were having your cancer treatment, and I, at, at that point, yeah, you were knowing I, how he would turn out, how you would turn out, how anything would turn out. Yeah, and you know, I think you asking that question, my God, you've got your, you know, if you look at the layering, I'm not immune to the drama of it, and as you know, I'm a dramatist. And I know that there was a good story and I knew that I could press, no, I knew where to put my foot down on the gas and when to let it, you know, I knew about the control of it. But I suppose I also was trying so desperately to make sense of my own sense of what we had been versus what we were. And what, the way I had lent into this notion of a brand of family and the desire to appear one thing and the way that I'd been blown apart. And I suppose my desire to write it down and to have this conversation with Jacob to the audience, to whoever might listen, is to almost go, have you ever felt like this? Can you imagine if this was you? Would you, mm. would you? would you act like this? Would you? How would you be in this? Because I need to know, because this, you know, it was such a propulsive experience just trying to keep everything together and yourself together. And my writing started to become a running partner with that, mm. if that makes sense. Mm, so yeah. I, kept a, I kept a diary... Um, for the first hundred days, I kept a really meticulous diary, and then it became apparent to me that I had a diary in many different forms, be it emails, WhatsApp groups, you know, texts I sent, the Google search I did that day, the articles I would download, constantly doing research around myself, around Jacob, around every every element of how you keep this family and one another together. I was doing research, so I was I was logging stuff down, but I was also building to this idea. I had this sort of crazy idea that. Jacob, when he got back, picked up his ukulele again. He's, he loves the ukulele. And I had this, he had a lot of obsessional things when he first came back. And one of them was this um, deep, deep love of friends. <laughs> I, I felt all the way through, like, that section, you're, like, basically Ooh. running the fucking world, yeah? Running everyone's world. Mm. You are getting treatment, you are doing mm. this, you are writing, you are doing, you're looking after your children, you're doing everything, and he's just watching Friends in the corner. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God, you're a miracle. Sorry, I missed No, 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 but, but you know, it's funny, because I saw, I, I, um, I saw that someone... I saw someone had tagged uh, the book, extracts of the book were serialised in the Sunday Times, and I saw someone had done whatever, a comment at the end, and they, this woman, it was a woman, I think, and she put, I hope my mother would have left my father if he'd done this to her. <coughs> and I read it and I thought, gosh, I've really got to think about that because I don't want to be perceived as a victim here. But then I wrote back and said, that would have been a shame because she might have missed her happy ending. Yeah. And I guess that's what it really comes down to is that, you know, throughout this, Jake wasn't horrible. Jake wasn't mean. Jake was lost. And also he was very loved and we all loved him. And when he came back into the house, it felt right he was there. Mm. so that was such a simple remit to work with and I, I, I really I love, appreciate you you know people say, people say kind things but honestly you would do the same well, you, this you is would what, do the this same this is what one wonders reading the book and Emily, Emily and mm. I discussed it earlier if we were tested in this way and I said I just don't think that I would be able to do what Abby's done and you know or do you just put one step in front of the other do you just keep going but um you know you know i mean i listen i thought you were a miraculous person since the day i met you but it really is an extraordinary story and and you know you move towards a happy ending his recovery initially was slow mm, wasn't it mm, mm. and and how far would he get and then at the end of the book you decide to get married 
We did. <laughs> well, I, well, it's a running, running gag. I mean, you know, I've been with Jake for 18 years. He's never wanted to get married. So, you know, just wait till someone has slight cognitive deficit and then that's how you walk them down the aisle. Um, but, um, hot tip, hot tip but, from Hot tip, right hot tip from him. But no, I mean, honestly, yes, we decided to get married. I think one of two things. One is I come from a long line of actors, performers, creators, storytellers, as does Jacob to a certain degree. And and so it was a very, it's a very natural thing that the, the telling of the story would be part of how I would work my way through this. We did, you know, originally I was going to do it as a stage play. I was, you know, I, that was the idea and I was going to put Jacob at the heart of it. And it was a way, it was going to be a way to almost bring his therapy together with his performance. And, and then COVID happened. So then, you know, we were in lockdown. So that was why I went to prose. And prose was incredibly liberating for me because suddenly I didn't have a million editors and then it had to go through actors and directors and producers it was just me and it but in the middle of that I started to see Jake was getting better and actually I end the book sort of towards the second lockdown actually which is when I was sort of writing the book which you know we've just come back from summer and there's a sort of indication that and there's a sense that Jacob there's hope that Jacob is going to start to improve he's very still very silent he totally knows who I am by then but you know we're still en route and then there's a little Adam which in the March afterwards, Jacob actually got ill again and went back into hospital for eight days during the COVID period. And he developed a breathing issue. And then we weren't able to go back in to see him. And while he was in there, that was when I felt really strongly that I wanted to get married, that I needed to be married. And there was no more conversation for me in terms of that. So when he came out and I suggested it for the first time ever, he went, yes, I think we should. For the and that's you know ever ever the 19th time I suggested you know, the first time, time ever he went yeah okay because I can see I'm not getting going anywhere so yeah we did and actually it's been and there was many reasons why it was lovely I mean in an ideal world we would have had everyone we loved there but actually when it came down to it what was brilliant about the fact we could only have a, we had 24 people that was all we could have was that it was exactly the number of both our friends and Jacob's oldest friend and 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 his wife who we love dearly and it was a really really beautiful day Jacob was very quiet but in that day we were able to express our love for him and 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 also I think as a family it was very important because I think you know it was devastating for Jacob's family to see what happened to Jake and also terrifying when for all of us when it looked like the way to bring Jake back was also being rejected you know i.e me so to be able to go no let's it's okay we've come through this I I do feel a profound sense of disbelief when we got here but actually um I honestly think given the circumstances and how much Jacob is worth you would do it if you were in the same if you felt the same way as you do you just would it's not it's not a it's it, 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 I'm, I'm really not a stoic person and I'm not a brave person but I am a slogger you know, it's the same. And it, that comes out of the writing as well. You know, you nothing can come of nothing. You have to sit down and write the first page and it'll probably be crap, but then you rewrite and you rewrite and you rewrite. And I guess in a weird way that did build a mechanism that sort of helped me with Jacob. It mm. made me feel quite undefeated because, you know, you get to, throughout life, don't you? I mean, it's what I tell my children, but, you know, it's, it is the old adage, but it's not what knocks you down. It's how you pick yourself up. And actually, there's a huge amount to be learned from failure, way more to be learned than failure. I've, I've learned way more from not winning the awards from you know from this terrible thing that's happened than I've ever done from all the other good stuff the other good stuff is brilliant you need it it fills up your urn of happiness you need that as the energy but actually it's the Beckett line you know try again fail again try again fail better you know it's and that was very much the adage when dealing with Jake was just that feeling of just 
chipping away. So you got married almost a year ago. Yeah. And and he was still very silent, but it was this incredibly loving day. Now, I had a cup of tea with you and Jacob about four weeks ago. Mm. And, you know, if you'd asked me, you know, I could use many, many words to describe beautiful Jacob. But at the moment, two of them would be not silent. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe Hello. three words, not silent anymore. Mm. Mm. I mean, you've had a remarkable six months, haven't you, you guys? Mm. Absolutely remarkable. And I think we're all just reeling from it. I mean, I was thinking about it even today. Yeah, so basically, he started around Christmas. I remember my family came over for Christmas and he was being really funny at Christmas dinner. And we were all just looking at each other because it doesn't come back like... It's, it, it comes back very quickly when someone cognitive, it's, it's weird, you realise, you know, there's that Buddhist phrase, love the flower in winter when it says nothing. You forget that all this, there's all this repair and regrowth going on, it looks like nothing above the surface. And then, but we started to get a bit of our spring and very quickly we, we went into summer. And I would say that Jacob is on a good day, 80, 90% of himself. I yes. mean, there's still some cognitive deficits, there's issues around memory. I don't, he doesn't believe, I'm not so convinced, but he doesn't believe he'll ever be able to act again for myriad of reasons. There's obviously physical deficits and things, but actually he's pretty damn amazing. I mean, you know, his conversation is back, his humour is back, his wit. He's never lost his empathy. He's interested in the world. And from someone who needed 24-hour care, he's now going off on jaunts abroad by himself. Yeah, he just went for five days to Florence on his own to see Florentina, very well prepared. Very well, yeah. So, and that's happened unbelievably rapidly. So, I think we've had probably, it's it'll be four years this June, mm. and I would say it's taken three and a half years, and it's literally the last six months where we're all. Um, wow. Because so after they, he woke up, they said that he would never. I think reca- regain any of the faculties that he's regained, right? I mean, li- but to the point of not being able to go to do anything on his own. That was the sort of the prognosis, wasn't well, it? Well, I mean, anti-N- it's really, really very interesting about encephalitis, but anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis has 80% of people recover almost fully. But when we raised that as a possibility, we were told that Jacob was on the very severe end of that. that so the, expect- the expectation was he would be in that 20%. And I think the length of time it's taken... Um, you know, it's been interesting, you know, amazing people have reached out about their own medical catastrophes or, and encephalitis is something that's come up again and again. And Jacob has certainly had a much longer experience than the average person I've spoken to so far. Uh, but, and therefore, I think that's why we'd given up. In watching him and helping him regain his independence, are you also regaining some of your mm. independence? How do you feel? Oh my God, I, I was just about to say, how do you feel? Well, do you it's even know? Well, I mean, the book's been extraordinary putting it out into the world. I, I don't know what I thought was going to happen, but I didn't... A, it's been... Well, I think it's been well received, but also um, I didn't expect to have to talk about it. Or, or not have to, but, you know, that that would also... That would come with it. So I suppose that's been interesting as part of the process. I feel pretty um, exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> I feel pretty... I feel like I'm taking stock. My, my daughter is just finishing her A-levels. I just wanted to get them both cooked. You know, I'm looking forward to her going out into the world. Um, January 2023, 20, I've declared as my year of health, uh, <laughs> where I would like to focus on, you know, doing all those things that I see other people do, and I'm going to start doing them. You know, I'm going to start doing exercise. I'm going to start not eating burgers at lunchtime. But I feel, I feel very fortunate. I feel genuinely fortunate, and I feel, I feel like my our story is genuinely a small story in a much bigger picture right now. But that's all I have. That's you know, this little life is my life, and I want to, um, 
I want to have this and enjoy this as much as I can and for as long as I can. You know, I think I think you've gone through cancer and you you're always going to be aware of that. It's sort of slightly shattered, and I want to use that in a positive way, which is I'm using that in a positive way, which is just trying not to sweat the. I was going to say try not to sweat. I've always been good at the big stuff. The smaller stuff is the stuff I tend to sweat. I can do the yeah. I can do the big gestures. I can travel. I can move past the small mm-hmm. stuff. We're going to be fucking late. We're going to be that. <laughs> that's the stuff. I'm trying yeah. to go. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to get the Jacob School of Unbearable Lightness of Being school. You know where he can just like, which he still has actually. In, 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 interestingly, but um, yeah. So I guess I guess that would be. I f- I'm feeling I'm a work in progress right now, but I'm I'm definitely starting to take stock a bit. It is possible to be both a work in progress and a masterpiece at the same time. Like that, like that a lot. Thank you very much for writing this book and putting your beautiful little, you say little, story out into the world. This is not a pity memoir by the sensational Abby Morgan. Buy it, read it, get your hands on it. And Abby, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me, ladies. Oh, oh, lots just, of love and thank thanks. you. Thanks. Love you too. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Midalt. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. Hi, my name is Kay Adams and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.